amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. everybody and welcome back to Truth and Justice. Uh, in this episode, this is going to be part six of our The Murder of Jody Jones series. This will be the final episode in this series and I'm once again joined by Dr. Sandra Lean. In this episode, as we discussed in last week's follow-up, what we're going to be doing is kind of buttoning up all the loose ends. So we had, we've had three very informative conversations. They generated a bunch of questions and as you heard in the follow-up this week, I don't know the answer to most of them, but Dr. Lean does. And also, she's been listening along and, and listening to your questions and the follow-ups, and so she has a few things that she wants to have straightened out. So we're going to go through first, uh, Dr. Lean is going to go through some things that maybe she feels that we've missed on and some of the questions that she heard come up in the follow-ups, and then uh, I'm going to then ask her some of the questions from our most recent follow-up. When you hear this, that follow-up will have aired on Friday, but when Dr. Lean and I are recording this, that episode has not aired yet, so she hasn't heard those questions. So, with that being said, Dr. Lean, thanks again for joining me. Thank you for having me. If you just give me one second, I'm just getting the questions up so that we're all ready to go. No problem. And uh, once you have them up, uh, I'll have you go ahead and walk through your list. I I have the list you sent me in front of me, too, so I'll kind of keep track and make sure that we're hitting everything. And uh, let's go through and, and see if we can tie up all these loose ends. Okay. The, the first question is not actually on the list because it only just came up in the last couple of days. And that was, you remember at the very beginning, you asked about the availability of transcripts in Scotland and the cost. Yes. And I found um, just the other day, the uh, transcripts of criminal proceedings in Scotland order, uh, which specifies that the, the court will only allow release of transcripts uh, if satisfied that the person requesting the transcript is a person who falls within a specified class of person and, ten, and intends to use it for a specified purpose only. Okay. So it then goes on to list who are specified people and what are specified purposes. And we are not specified people, <laughs> and our purposes are not specified purposes. So regardless of cost, you, ha- you we couldn't get them even if we had the money to get them? No. So, so to give you an idea, um, specified persons, specified class of person, the prosecutor... Any any person convicted, any other person named in or immediately affected by any order made by the court, or any person authorized to act on behalf of any person that falls within. So, so there's two of them that we could use, but even if we do, we don't fit specified purpose. 
the purpose being, yeah, that for it to be shared publicly. They're going to go, that's not a specified purpose. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, so it's all things like the court of human rights, an appeal for mercy, that sort of thing. Those are the specified purposes. So even if we had the money, we wouldn't get through the, those hoops to qualify to get them. But in terms of money, it costs about £110 per hour of transcription Okay. to, to get transcripts. Now, there are well over 200 hours of evidence in Luke's case. Transcripts take about three hours to transcribe per hour of evidence. So we're way over the £60,000 mark. And given who things are right now, I would much rather that money was spent on getting these samples tested than going after transcripts that we can't get anyway. So I just thought I would throw that one in. To begin, and so do I understand then that like then even Luke's defense does not have the transcripts. No, we have probably about eighty percent of the transcripts, but we are bound with this project we use them for. Right, so you can't share them, but you have them for him to use in his legal defense. That's why I've been able to quote from transcripts verbatim. But like I said last time, if I were to put the whole transcript up. That's where we cross the line, unfortunately. I, I also do want to point out too, for you, if you, if you guys are listening uh, and you notice this, the that Sandra's sound quality isn't the best, it's because she she said she's been out of internet for a couple of days and we're working off of phone internet right now. So if anything seems choppy, it's just because we're we're doing our best to to make this work. Yeah, sorry. No problem. And then so and, and then from there we can go through the list. I, the first one that everybody and I did mention it in the follow up this week uh, that you had emailed me about this. Um, but Zach had a big question about uh, the missing knife. And actually, after we were done recording last week, he we were out in in uh, in the office, and he was still going. He's like, I don't like what. Where's the what about the knife? How come there's no more discussion about the knife? This missing knife. And from what you emailed me, there is no missing knife. No. So the the knife that they tried to claim at court was the missing knife, the knife that belonged to the knife pouch. That knife and pouch, first of all, were bought in the December following Jodie's murder. And when the police took the pouch, the knife wasn't in it. Mm-hmm. Because Pauline had taken it from Luke. He wasn't allowed to have it. It was for his, his you know, his camping trips and his survival. So he wasn't allowed to have it at all times. And when after after the police had taken the pouch and everything else, she came across it in a drawer, handed it to Luke's solicitor, who took it to the police. And the statement is in the defence papers that the solicitor took this knife to the police. So they knew that that knife was never missing. The only missing knife is the murder weapon. But they conflated this empty pouch. Missing knife must be the murder weapon. And that knife has been in the possession since 2003. Wow. And we have the statement to prove it. Yeah, and you have... Also, you said it said that the knife was not even purchased until after the murder. Is it were there like receipts or something to back that up to show when it was purchased? Yes, they have the receipts and the description of the knife and the pouch with the receipt in the police files. Wow! And, and so, did they then at trial still present that the knife was missing even though they had it? Yeah. Wow. And was the defense able to argue that, like show them the receipt, you know, present the into evidence, the receipt and things that when it was purchased? There was some confusion because they introduced the receipt to prove that the knife was purchased 
after the murder, but that didn't explain why the prosecution were saying it was now missing. Uh-huh. If, if you understand. So, so yes, see, it wasn't bought till after the murder. It couldn't have been the murder weapon. Mm-hmm. But we have a missing knife, and we're not going to do anything to close the gap in understanding between the see, and there is a missing knife. Was the defense able to at least present to the jury that, you know, the statement that they had, turn, in fact, turned that knife over? I don't believe they actually used that particular piece of evidence and said the, the, the solicitor handed it in. Uh-huh. I think they, they just went along the lines of, you know, the knife was handed in, it's not missing, here's the receipt, it was bought afterwards. So I think the confusion around it all was never cleared up at trial wow and 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 hence hence why we have people all over the internet saying that this nice knife is missing yeah yeah to this day and uh you had also mentioned that you know zach had brought up that you know that the me had said the cut to the tonsils the only way that it could have been made by that knife was if somebody was holding it by the very tip with the tip of their fingers zach had brought up a good point that you know her cheek was cut so that would you know create more space uh but you said there was a there was a response to that as well the the wound to the tonsil was on the opposite side to the cheek wound okay so unless we're suggesting that sorry i need to get a bit graphic here but unless we're suggesting that they went diagonally through the cheek to the back of the which would then have needed an even longer blade because it's an angle instead of going straight through, um, it, it would appear that that wound was inflicted separately on the other side from the cheek wound. And in that evidence, as far as the Emmy's testimony about the length of the knife, did th- did that stand at trial? Did nobody nobody refuted that that it could have been done without you know holding the very tip of it? No, that the, the pathologist. His stance was that was the only way it could have been done, holding the very tip straight through. That wasn't argued. Okay. Um, all right. So then we'll move on. And um, there were some questions about the neighbors and 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 reporting smoke. Yes. Yeah, so so when, I, when I listened back, there was a comment that um, nobody could report that there was smoke. And again, this is, it's, it's just these little understandings. People reported smelling smoke. So the two neighbours next door and the one across the back reported smelling smoke. And the one across the back was the one that said it was it was funny smelling smoke. But nobody actually reported seeing smoke. And like I said, all, all, the, all the gardens backed onto each other. So even if you did see smoke, it would be impossible to tell which of the gardens it was coming from because they all had these six-feet fences. And then, you know, the gardens all butt onto each other. But the reports were of smelling smoke, not of seeing smoke. Right. And in the rest of the, because we'd mentioned there was like 37 or 38 neighbors total, uh, the other 35 of them, whatever, were they questioned and said they didn't smell smoke that night? Some of them said they didn't smell smoke, they didn't see smoke, they didn't see fire. Some of them said they may have smelled wood smoke, but it wouldn't have been unusual because lots of people had bonfires in the garden in that area. Right. So that's as close as we get to other stories about smoke. Gotcha. 
Um, and then moving on, there was, and, and I think I cleared this up on the follow-up, but I want to make sure, uh, that we're clear on it. There was, uh, the question about the, the other jacket from the school, um, the kind of the way Jack, Zach heard it was that someone in 2022 had the jacket and he didn't understand how that was relevant. And the way I took it was that the police had taken that jacket all the way back in 2003, but you just didn't, the defense didn't find out about it until 2022. Is that right? That's correct, yeah. We knew nothing about it until, actually, until we started destroying the evidence and we found it in the list of things being destroyed. That's how we found out about it. Wow. And that, and, and, and that was actually something the police had found and confiscated back then, back at the time of the crime. Yes. Yes. Basically to hide it from the jury so that the only person who could be presented as wearing that parka in school was Luke. Right. Okay. Um, and then there were the questions about the the liaison officer's notes. Uh, uh, Zach had brought up that it was that um, they, they were talking about, I think, like song lyrics or, or, or something like that. But it, he was confused. And I guess I was a little confused, too, about because we said that it was presented as Luke brought this up. But then the note showed that the liaison officer herself had were the one that brought it up. How Can you explain that for us a little better? That that came about through the development of statements all the way up to evidence. So a bit like the other statements that changed over time, when we went back through, or when, when the defence went back through the early notes from the liaison officer, from which she wrote up her early statements, she said in the early statements that she'd introduced these song lyrics. By the time we got to court, Luke had introduced the song lyrics so it's just another one of these the story changed just that little bit right from the beginning to trial and you end up with this teenager introduces these lyrics about some guy killing his girlfriend when you find out in the early stages actually this police officer asked him did he know this song and did he like it and all that sort of thing and that was documented in the early stages by her herself yes Gotcha. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today 
at shopify.com slash records. And, and then there was the question of the, somebody was asking when, when Steven had said that we called an hour ago, they want to know there was that mystery call, which we, I'd like to talk a little bit about that because we didn't bring that up, but there was this, this mystery call to the police or somebody identifying themselves as Judith uh, at 1045. Uh, and they want to know, does when Steven said we called an hour ago, did that line up with that time? Almost to the minute. So it was 1144 when he called 999 and the mystery call was 1045. Okay. Now let's talk about that mystery call a little bit. Cause that one, cause a lot of people have questions about that and I'm certainly baffled by it. So how is that is, is that in the dispatch log that there were like how do we know there were two phone calls the one where Judith actually did call nine 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 and then the one a few minutes before where someone who said they were Judith called nine 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 right we have two statements in the defense papers logging missing person details okay and when I first got the the access to the papers this first one. There's no incoming number on it. So we can't tell what telephone number that call was made from. That's the first thing. It then goes on to, to log the details. So this woman is looking for her daughter. She gives her own name. She gives her mother's full name, including her maiden name. So this is Jodie's grandmother's full name, including maiden name. So this is someone who really knows the family. And she gives the information that her daughter has not been with her boyfriend and she's not been at her grand. At the time this call is being made, Judy is on her landline to Jodie's grand asking if Jodie's been there that evening because it's 10.45. And Judith dialed her mother's number at 10.44 and the call lasted about four minutes. So she's still on the phone to her mother while this call, purporting to be Judith, is being made to report the missing person at exactly the same time. But there's no there's no phone number on it for us to figure out who made that call. Hmm. And we have never, ever been able to get to the bottom of it. It's weird for a lot of reasons, because I'm like going through my mind, different scenarios. Like, well, maybe the the 999 call was Judith and maybe the call to the grand's house wasn't her. But then, how would she be able to tell nine 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 that she knows that Judith is or that Jody isn't at her grandmother's house if she hasn't talked spoken to her yet? I, I can't make sense of it. No, because because nobody knew it, it was ten forty two when Luke first called Judith back to say I haven't seen her. Uh huh. And then two minutes later, that call ends. Ten forty four, she calls the grandmother. So only Judith and Luke by that stage know that Jodie's not been with Luke. Neither of them yet know that she's not been at her grand's, which she could have been. Uh-huh. But somebody's calling the police. Can I just point out as well, neither of the missing person calls were 999 calls. They weren't emergency calls. They were made to the local police stations. Okay. So, so they weren't made as emergency calls, just... People will people will come in on that one. So just to let you know, how sure are we about the time of that? So, like here in the American system, if someone calls the police station, they call nine one one for us or nine 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 for you. 
there's you know there's a computer aided dispatch that that time stamps it there's no question about it it shows you know at, at 10:45 and 42 seconds this call came in in this case is it that precise like is there is there a possibility that somebody wrote later yeah that call came in at 10:45 and really it came in at 10:55 it's possible the the 999 service is exactly like yours everything time-stamped as the, as the calls come in. But the way this missing person call is laid out, it's in the same format, so the, the timestamp is in the the left-hand margin. Uh-huh. The detail is typed up next to it. So it looks like it is a timed call. I can't say for certain it was. It may just have been typed up in that fashion, but certainly it's in the same, you know, the sort of way I agree, the, the date and time. In, in the the body of the message it's it's typed up in that in that format does it have seconds like so that you know like 10:45 in so many seconds or is it just say 10:45 off the top of my head i can't remember okay we'll have to, we'll have to you have to email me about that cuz i'm curious about cuz i'm trying to figure out it yeah. like is there a possibility that this was just the time was just entered in wrong you know, if somebody, yeah. if it wasn't like pulled from a computer, if somebody had to manually import it, if it was as simple as a clerical mistake. Yeah, yeah, it could have been. Um, if it had had seconds, I'm pretty sure I would have added them because I usually do. If I'm reporting the time, I give the exact as it was recorded. So I'll double check that and I'll email you and let you know. Perfect. Okay. And we can uh, move on. Then uh, there was a question about does, does Scotland law, do you have? protections against uh self-incrimination like here it's the it's your your fifth amendment right to remain silent you have the right not to incriminate yourself is there something like that in scotland as well yes um we, we do have the caution that that tells you what those rights are that i explained last time about the section 14 interviews with no legal advice and representation so they did read read luke's rights to him mm-hmm. They did say you don't have to answer, but it, it was gobbledygook. It was not a clear caution. Uh, well, look, uh, this is just a formality. Uh, so what I'm saying is, uh, what is this man saying? You know, it's just nonsense. But but the caution is in there. But I think I think it, it's one of the things that really stands out the difference between how people in the UK approach these things and from what I've learned about how people in the US approach them. We are dumb. <laughs> Honestly, we have no idea how to deal with these circumstances. Uh-huh. The, the whole, because legal aid just trundles in like a knight in shining armor and goes, we're here to represent you, we'll save you. We have no idea really how our justice system works. And the vast majority of people that have had no previous dealings with the law just sit back and go, oh yeah, they'll take care of it. The thing is, in like in the United States, I think that we're we're getting people are getting better. That a lot of it is because of this medium, because of podcasting, as if or, or so many people are the people are learning more about it. But it's it, it's still all the time. People, we I mean, most cases I work, it's always the same thing. Like you're they're they're right. It's not I wouldn't not necessarily like kind of gobbledygook, but definitely the police still to this day are very good about trying to make you feel like the right thing to do is to waive your rights. 
They're very good about that. Like, listen, you, I, I got to read you these rights. You have the right to an attorney. You have this. And then they have you go through. And then, you know, we just want to talk to you, but we can't talk to you unless you, unless you waive these rights. And then if, if somebody's like, no, I think I want an attorney. You're like, oh, you want, oh, you don't want to help? We're just trying to find out what happened to your friend. You don't want to help? I get, oh, well, I guess I, and people say sign off it and they talk. So that's one of the things that we constantly beat into. Like we, we tell our audience, tell your children and everybody you know, lawyer. The only word you say to the police ever is lawyer. And that's it. Do not say another word to them. Yeah. We have the, you know, if you've done nothing wrong, you've got nothing to hide. How can you harm yourself by telling the truth? Exactly. And there's case after case after case of wrongful convictions where it's like, if they had just shut their mouth, they would have been fine because they, they were innocent. And so they thought what can happen wrong. And so they start, and then the police start tripping them up and they start, you know, they, they don't really remember something, but they try to remember something. So they, you know, they put some story on the record and then all of a sudden the tables turn and it's, you lied. I'm like, wait, wait, I didn't lie. I didn't know. You said you knew. And it just spirals from there. Yes. Yes. And anyway, so there is similar to us that you do have, you have the right to not incriminate yourself, but also similar to a lot of Americans. Most people don't take that right. Yeah. All right. Then there was, um, oh, there was the, the question people were asking about the recordings from Luke from prison, where we heard bits and pieces of them in the, in the documentary. And my assumption was that that was, those recordings were owned by a production company. But uh, from what you said, they know they don't, they actually belong to you. They belong to Luke. To Luke. So I have yeah. them. Yeah. I have them in safekeeping for Luke. Um, but I have all of them. So I have all the interviews that were done for the documentary. I have the recordings when he spoke to the crowd when we handed the, prote- the, the uh, petition in at the Scottish Parliament. We had a recording mm-hmm. of Luke for the crowd that gathered there. And the, the series that we did on YouTube, which is called The Sound of Science, four-part series, entirely Luke speaking from prison about his experiences in prison. So I have all of those, and I have permission to share them should anybody want to hear them. Great. And and are they all, so you t- told me that on YouTube, if you look up The Sound of Silence, that is the series uh, that you have on YouTube uh, where people can go and they can hear them. Are all of the recordings on that series? Only the four that he did about his experiences in prison. I can put up the, the full interviews that he did for the documentary. I haven't edited them yet, but I, c- I could put that up if that's something people would be interested in. Oh, I think for sure they will. Yeah. And it, yeah. So that if you can do that, and then if you let me know, once you do, I will let our audience know where they can go find those. Cause yeah, I had a lot of people asking, like they'd love to hear from, to hear from Luke. So I think people would love to hear that. Okay. I've taken a note to get them sorted out for you as well. Okay. So there's that. Well, so the, the ones that are already out there now, if you go to YouTube sound of silence, uh, and then Dr. Lean is going to try to get more of those up here in the near future. And then there were some questions about the, or something you had brought up about the oversight of the prosecutors. Yes, a lot of people find this really, really difficult to, to accept, even in Scotland. The, the top of our justice system in Scotland is called the Lord Advocate. So that's the very highest authority, legal authority, who makes the final decisions in everything. There is nobody above the Lord Advocate. Okay. We can't go to somebody and complain that the Lord Advocate got something wrong because there is nobody above the Lord Advocate to complain to. Now, here's the kicker. Our Lord Advocate is a woman who is married to the man who prosecuted Luke. So the 
So the, the questions people had about what seems like maybe could have been some prosecutorial misconduct, a complaint about that would go to his wife. Yes. And then there's nobody above his wife. Nope. His wife turned down the, the original petition with 25,000 signatures with no reason. She gave no reason other than we're not looking at that. When you say that, that is the oversight for the prosecutor, is, is that where an appeal of the case would go? Is up to the Lord Advocate or is there an appeals court also? It would go to the, the appeals court, the, the high court in Scotland. And a, a decision would be taken by a panel of judges whether to allow an appeal or not. And it would also be up to those judges to make a decision on whether the conviction is overturned or not. But their boss is the Lord Advocate. <laughs> <laughs> Everything just keeps coming back in a big circle. Yeah. Um, and you, you had something, I'll let you explain it, because I, I had given what, what I maintained was a brilliant analogy about the, the legs of this case being paper towel rolls on holding a granite countertop, uh, and you had a comment about that. Yeah. Um, at appeal, there was some discussion between the three appeal judges about the Andrina Bryson sighting, and one of the judges referred to that sighting as the cornerstone of the case. And one of the other judges said, cornerstones are dangerous things. That was after we had brought out all the stuff about Andrina Bryson not being an independent witness because her brother-in-law was running back and forward to Jodie's grand's house, to her mum's house, giving them information about the sighting and updating it and all of that. So she was not an independent witness. We brought all of that out. We brought out the fact that her description didn't match Luke or Jody at all. And the appeal court judges, now what was it they actually said? Um, the jury was entitled to infer that the girl could have been Jody. How on earth do you uphold a conviction on that basis? Especially because from what you had explained, the clothing alone to me would have been enough to question it. You know, if you weren't close enough to see facial features and you could only see clothing and the clothing she described was a different color even than Jody was wearing. And she never once said that was Jody. Like, how does that become a cornerstone of the case? Mm. And I mean, Jody's clothing was so distinctive. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not as if say, she was wearing a, the, the, the witness said a lighter blue sweatshirt, but she was actually wearing a black sweatshirt. That's okay. You could say, right, okay, maybe. But Jodie's clothing was so distinctive, so very, very baggy, this massive logo across the back. And she describes a blue sweatshirt. And blue pants. Yeah, that's, that's, it, it's crazy. It's, of all things, that that is the cornerstone of the case is, is so odd. Yeah. And then uh, there was a question about the jury deliberation. I, th I think we, we, I think Zach and I eventually got there. It really hadn't occurred to me until Zach and I were having that conversation on the air that with only having to have a simple majority that as long as everybody votes, there's only one vote. Like it's, it's mm -hmm. going to go one way or the other. There's an odd number of jurors. And as soon as there's eight votes, that's it. And I, I yeah. think what you had pointed out in your email to me was that, that I think he or I had said that as soon as you get more than eight votes, but it's not more than eight votes. The, as soon as you get, Eight votes, one way or other. That's it. 
Game over. Yep. So does that mean so when they're deliberating for uh because there was there was a question about the deliberation time as well, which which I'll let you explain uh that here in just a second, but for the five hours they were deliberating that that has to mean either they they were discussing and didn't take a vote or that they took a vote and people were abstaining from the vote i would is, is it has to be right because if all 15 people voted then it would have been over uh, yeah we, we actually we're not allowed to know anything about what goes on in jury deliberations nothing so so all we have is the the foreman comes out and says we've reached a decision we were not allowed to, to know anything about so so they, they would have been told when eight of you agree. Are there any things in the instructions as far as like how that so in the United States, I've been on a couple of juries, and it's really up to the foreman of the jury to determine how to do this. But everyone I've been on, usually what we do is when we go back to deliberate, the first thing they do is let's take a vote and see where everybody's at. And they Take a vote, and now in the United States, you have to have unanimous verdict. So you might have ten guilty, two not guilty, and like, okay, well, now let's talk about it. You know, who thinks they're not guilty, and then and and what makes you think they're not guilty? In this case, I'm wondering, like, are there anything as far as what that procedure looks like? If they typically will take a vote right at the beginning and then go from there, or if there's discussions first, or it's just no one knows and there's no set rule. No idea, and juries are breaking the law if they speak to anybody outside the jury room about what went on inside the jury room. So r- truly nobody knows what's happening in there. No. No. Wow. Um, oh, yeah. And the, uh, the hours you would, I'll let you explain the, because you had said five hours and Zach didn't, the time didn't seem to line up, but you, you explained in the email how, how it was five hours. Yeah. So, so they'd come to the lunch break, um, right about 1230 and the jury were sent out at, lunchtime to deliberate um there was a couple of two of them drawn and then at half past four they came back and said they were nowhere near the verdict so the judge sent them home okay uh, I, I may have said half past three last time that might have caused the confusion i can't remember but it was half past four so it was that was four hours Twelve thirty to four thirty was four hours yeah and then they came in they were to be in court ready to be in the jury room for 10 o'clock the Friday morning mm-hmm. so they were all in and door shut behind them at 10 o'clock and at 11 o'clock they delivered their verdict so at 4.30 they were nowhere near a verdict they went home and they were in that room for one hour and delivered their verdict if that was an American case that would be shocking but I wonder how is, is that super uncommon in Scott because that was kind of the, the discussion we were having was if all 15 people vote, you're going to have a verdict, no matter what, right now. Yes. So I would think that the deliberations aren't typically super long. It w- is five hours. Where does that kind of line up with kind of the average time the juries deliberate in Scotland? Surprisingly short. Really? Yeah, surprisingly short. You would be looking for, at the very least, a full day, maybe two days. Mm-hmm like a half a day for a 42-day trial. How did they even summarize 42 days worth of evidence and then come to a decision in five hours? So, so yeah, that was surprisingly short. All I could think about, like the only way that, and of course no one knows to me, is, was if they 
had been talking about it. And when they came back the next morning, they, they said, well, let's take a vote. And then it was, we don't know what it was, but it was eight to seven. They're like, well, we're done. There's no more discussion. That's over. That's it. Yeah. How many of us think guilty? Me, me, me. Upright. We've got eight. Let's go. Uh, oh, and then people were asking, like, was this the way this case went? If this was kind of like standard operating procedure for Scottish police, because it seems it seems crazy to us, like the way that all of this went down as far as them honing in on Luke and that like everybody's changing stories. We've certainly seen cases like that in the United States, but they're pretty rare. Uh, is this a is was this case out of the ordinary for the, the Scotland police? I suppose for most ordinary people who'd had no no dealings with them, initially this did seem very, very odd. It was like, how could they be so incompetent or, or was it deliberate, all of that. But actually, over the years, looking at Scottish cases as I've been doing, this happens in way more cases in Scotland than most people would believe. And it is a pattern. It is a decide who our suspect's going to be, mm-hmm. pick up the stuff that we can fit around him, leave all the rest, don't look at it, don't gather it so that it's not there to disclose. This actually happens far more in Scotland than most people would believe. But in terms of what they're supposed to do, God, it's off the scale. And, and and again, you know, especially me, I work in the wrongful conviction space. So I see a lot of cases where stuff like this happens. I like to think that it's the minority of cases and not the majority of cases. But certainly in the United States, prosecutors and detectives are incentivized by closing cases and winning. So they, yeah. you know, and like what you describe, I always call it bad evidence. You know, so we usually if you see a case that did go wrong, you'll see that where there's no, there's no bad evidence. So like, well, they could have just talked to that person and found out what really happened and found out if he actually had an alibi, but they never talked to them. So instead yeah. of getting that and having to hide it, they just don't even ever, ever collect the evidence to begin with. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not, it's certainly not the same situation as you said, where that's not obviously not the way it's supposed to be done, but it does happen more often than we'd like to think. We, we do have as well, th- this real difficulty in Scotland. Now we used to have, different police forces for different areas and in 2013 I believe, they brought them all together so now there is one police force for the whole of Scotland. One police force. Wow. Who who comes in to check an investigation that's gone wrong? Well, nobody because we don't have anybody now. There's no higher, oh yeah, I guess not if they're all one because that is one advantage. It doesn't get utilized very often but the United States here you have most, you know, larger municipalities have their own local police department. Smaller ones may be lumped together with what, you know, what we call a county or our parish, um, you know, a group of towns that are in one county. There'll be a police force to cover them. But then there's also every state has a state police department that's over all of them. And then there's the FBI, our federal police department. So there's at least someone you could, if there's something not going right, you can say, well, I want the, the state police to come in and look at this, or I want the federal, the feds to come in and look at it. You don't have that in Scotland. You have one force. No, no. We, our, our top police investigating organization is Police Scotland. <laughs> the system is on paper. It's set up to fail almost. Like there's the everything for that we've discussed from the inaccessibility of 
evidence and trial statements and trial testimony to the general public. No one's allowed to see what actually happened with yeah. the police department, with the with the trial, with any of that. There's no oversight with the police department and with the prosecutor's office. The oversight in this case is the prosecutor's wife, and there's nobody above them. Like there's a like for us, there's this in the court system. There's a series of we just went through one of the major cases I'm working on, uh, a case out of Baltimore, Maryland, in the United States, where you know there's the circuit court and they make a, a decision, and then if they, and then there's a court of appeals above them, and then there's a court of special appeals, and then there's the Maryland Supreme Court, and then there's the United States Supreme Court. So you at least have you know four or five places you can continue to appeal up to, and, and they get out of your local area pretty quick. You know, where where by the time you go up to the Maryland Supreme Court is not just from that little area, it's the whole state. And of course, the the Supreme Court of the United States is is a huge, they cover the whole country. And you just don't have yeah. any of that in Scotland. No, we, we have access to um, the European Court, the, the Supreme Court in Europe, but that tends to be on purely on human rights grounds. So they won't interfere with domestic law unless it's on human rights grounds. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Moving, the last thing that you had sent to me was people had asked if the people that, the couple that Adrena saw, if they if that was not Luke and Jody, then who was it? It's a small town. Somebody should be able to figure out who it was. Yep, people have come at us so many times over the years saying, "Well, if it wasn't them, who?" Right. Turns out that there was actually another couple in the police files. They got off the bus, and and anybody that's ever seen the the um, reconstruction of Jody leaving home, she comes. Well. The deconstruction, so it's the police officer. She comes down the street past a bus stop and then down to the entrance to the path and turns in. This couple got off the bus at that bus stop. 
within five minutes of the earliest time of the Andrina Bryson sighting. They walked down that same road and turn in to the entrance to the path. The police found out about them, they interviewed them, and they disappeared them into the files. Wow, and that wasn't disclosed to the defense? No, that's why there was never any call for anybody else that was in the area that might have been a young couple to come forward because they already knew who they were. They already had their statements in the files. Wow. In the statement, does it say like what they were wearing or anything like that? Or if they saw anything on the path? No. No, of course not. They actually, they were found because John Ferris was on the moped on Lady Path. So they'd come in and instead of going down Roanside Path, this couple had turned to come along Lady Path and they'd, they'd encountered John Ferris on the moped. And John Ferris trying to, trying desperately to, to, be seen to be where they said he was at different times, gave their names to the police. That's the only reason the police knew about them at all. Wow. So they weren't even questioning them as possibly being the people seen by Andrina Bryson. They were questioning them on the basis that they could place John Ferris on the path at, at a particular time. So what was it, what time did they get off the bus? Four, no, five. Hang on. Get my fours and my fives mixed up. Yeah. So they were in the they were in the entrance to the path four forty. Four forty. Okay. So they got yeah no hang on they got off the bus sorry they got off the bus at four forty so they would have been in the entrance to the path at four forty three and Andrew been Andrew Nebraska's sighting the first window was four forty nine and so and then they continued on the Rones Dyke path into uh, New Battle. No, they turned where the paths meet at the right angle. They turned and they came along Lady Path. Okay, uh, but so her sighting saw the saw the the moped, the the guy on the moped on the East House's side at four forty five ish, four forty three. Yeah, four forty three. Okay, and then but then the other sightings of the moped over in New Battle were later, right? They were like closer to six o'clock, yeah, or five o'clock. Five o'clock. So, so this this four forty three would have been Ferris leaving to go and pick up Dicky in New Battle. Gotcha. Okay. And as you, you said, that you know there was, they may have been able to figure out who that couple was. They did have that account of the couple, but they never put out. There was never an appeal put out as to was anybody here at this time to see if they could identify who it was. Because it sounds like based on Andrina's actual first report that that wouldn't have been who she saw because she wasn't there until after six, until around like six o'clock, right? If her initial statement is taken as the state, yeah. Yeah. So if they take the statement that was used at trial, then it could have been this couple. If you take her initial statement, it wouldn't have been the couple. But either way, they never asked like out into the public, were you, is there any young couples that were seen or that were, that would have been at the path at this time? Because in, once they had her sighting, they decided that had to have been Luke and Jody, and that was the end of it. Yes. Um, I want to. I've got some questions from my listeners here, but but one thing that that I've been wondering about, we we talked about, it and I forgot to ask when we were speaking about it last week. Who was it that reported that they saw the moped at the V break in the wall at five fifteen? That person has never been publicly identified. Okay. And there are reasons for not revealing. Their identity. 
that that's why I have to be very very careful about that particular sighting. Um, trying to think of a, a way that I can say it with that is it, because of the local area. The information I can give about this person would identify them, and and there are particular reasons for not identifying them. For what it's worth, Ferris and Dickie both agreed that the bike was at the V point at five fifteen. So regardless of the sighting, they themselves agreed that the bike was there. But I'm, I'm sorry, I can't I can't give too much information about this witness. That's fine. I I, under, I understand that. Do we, as far as how do you know? That the sighting happened was it was that a statement they gave to police or like a statement yeah. they gave to? Okay, so that was in the so we we can we can without knowing who the person is, we know that this person did report to the police that they saw the bike there yeah. or the moped there, and and we can tie their movements either side of that sighting to known events. Okay, so so we know they were where they said they were when they saw the bike. Right, because of the other parts of the statement that place them in particular places slightly before and slightly afterwards. Right, so it seems like we're pretty comfortable saying. I'm pretty comfortable saying from what you've told me that the moped, whatever happened, the mopeds, based on this sighting and the statements of the two people that were on the moped, that the moped absolutely was there at the V break in the wall at five fifteen. Yes. Okay. Uh, so a couple of questions that, that came up in, uh, for our listeners, they will have heard it Friday. People want to know, did, was the stocky man's identity ever found out? Do we know who the stocky man actually was? I think there was, I think somebody had read something online that, that that person was identified, not the person that was out of the country, but the actual person was identified. Yes. Um, we didn't know until 2014 that he'd been identified. Okay. But he was actually identified in 2003. So the one of the witnesses who saw him originally on June 30th went back to the police later because she had seen him in footage of a group of other males, all very similar looking. So I, I'll just say, I, I haven't put this out myself officially before, but other people have figured it out. Jodie's funeral, there were a group of males all in black suits, all with dark, short, dark hair. And this witness saw this group of males and pointed one of them out and said, that's the man I saw. And went back to the police and said, that's the person. The identity was known at that stage. So there was a name given with it, but that was never released to defence. Has that name become public now, or is that another one where the name is being withheld? Okay. This witness identified Jody's brother. Jody's brother as the stocky man. Yes. Okay. So, uh, that's interesting. So, adding to what we talked about in last week's episode, with the weirdness of family members and things that were involved in the crime scene, we also have the person that was seen walking towards the path with Jody was identified as Jody's brother. Yeah, so that would put him as the last person with her last time she was seen alive, or or within close proximity to her mm -hmm. the last time she was seen alive that we know of. 
did he ever give any statements about him walking towards the path with her that day? I've never seen any, but you have to remember that because of his health, there are no official statements from him. There are statements attributed to him, but they're not signed. They're not dated because he was not mentally, he was not considered to be mentally well enough to give usable statements. So anything that we have attributed to him. So, yeah, I wasn't aware. Did, did, he, did he have some kind of or does he have some kind of disability? A very, very serious mental health issues. Okay, moving on. People wanted to know, do we know if the guy who was identified, uh, they refer to him as the condom gentleman, that had let, that his DNA was found in the condom. Was he coming from the north or did he have to climb the V in the wall? People were wondering, like, could he have gotten to that place, like where he lived from the other side of the wall without climbing through the V? Or from where he lived, would he have had to go over the v, through the V? No, anybody could get to the point behind the V without climbing the V if they were coming from the south. Because at the very top of the path, where Ronsdyke meets Lady Path, the wall there, Ronsdyke Path there, is broken all the way to the ground. Okay. A six, seven feet gap in the wall that goes all the way to the ground. So you can just walk in there, turn, and walk all the way down through the woods without having to go over the wall. So, and that, and the lady path is on the East House's side of the wall. And didn't, and if I remember correctly, didn't you say that he lived somewhere south of the wall on Lady Path? Yeah. So, Lady Lady Path runs north to south. Right. So, Rones, Rones Dykes west to east. Mm hmm. Lady Path north to south at right angles. So, if you imagine, here's, here's Rones Dyke, here's Lady Path. He comes down here. You go up that way, Jesus. He comes in here, and his house is just off Lady Path down here. And the moped boy, one of the moped boys, his house is just here, off Lady Path as well. So those houses, the the gardens back onto Lady Path, or or the path from the back gardens came out onto Lady Path, which took you straight along to either behind Rowan's Dyke the wall mm -hmm. or if he turned down Rowan's Dyke Path. So from the direction he came from, he would have he would have come from the south from his house. Yeah. And then and didn't have to go through the V break in the wall, would have just walked into the wall right there at that intersection and then could have walked behind it the whole way. Yeah, that that was actually his description of what he did that night. Okay. And how far down to the west from that intersection was Jody's body found where the V break is? Because the, the path's about a mile long, right? It's about, it's 900, just under 900 meters from entrance to entrance. But you've got to take off the two bits that are not the path. So maybe about, maybe about 750 meters, 250 meters. So about 500 meters from that break in the wall to the V point. Okay. 400 to 500 meters to that, that break in the V point. Okay, so the wall is about a half. This is, if I'm doing my math right, 800 meters is half of a mile, and it was about 500 meters where she, where the V break was, and where her body was. So, just over a quarter of a mile. So, not a real long way. No. Okay. People wonder: Was there any other DNA in the condom? 
other than his? The there was a bit of a well, rather unusually for this crime scene, they messed it up a bit, and the swabbings from the outside of the condom they were unable to get results from. So, it, were there was there just no res, no DNA available, or they they did something wrong with the swab? The result that we got written down was no reportable result. And was was he was he uh, what was his age? He would have been nineteen or twenty. Okay, so he's a young guy at the time. Yeah, old older than Luke and Jody's. Right. Right. You know, he he was. And older than school age, obviously. Right. You'll hear on Friday there was a whole <laughs> very awkward discussion with all of with all of us trying to figure this the whole scenario out with the condom and him out there doing it and why he would have a condom. And um it's one of the things that had come up was people said, Well, if he was young, maybe he's a you know, young guy who keeps a condom in his wallet or something, or uh something like that. Does he have any other criminal history? Yes. Yes, he had um, prior to prior to the, the condom being left, he had some assaults, mainly against men, mm-hmm. and then he actually has. Now I'm not sure if both of them ended up in convictions, or if one was a conviction and the other was acquitted for stalking females. Hmm. But those were after he dropped his condom on the way home. Okay. Um, oh, so somebody had asked if the person who saw the moped parked there was the same man who was cycling, but it sounds like no. So so the guy that was cycling through didn't see the moped. No, the guy that was cycling through didn't see anything. He did say in, in evidence that he heard a moped away in the distance. Uh-huh. Right. He actually slipped up. He said he had their moped away in the distance. Well, how could he possibly have known whose moped it was on the day? Right. But he didn't that uh, in his earlier statements. He didn't say anything about hearing the moped in his earlier statements. So just like this change from rustling to struggling to strangling, over time, we have he cycles up the path, hears some noise in the wood and sees nothing to, oh, by the way, when I heard that, rustling sound in the trees somehow I, I now heard a moped in the distance uh-huh. but the actual wording was away in the distance right well if he's on that path not away in the distance that was a loud bite yeah speaking of that there was some janet and i had some discussion about this and how we interpreted what you had said so you had said that in in our previous interview that you know he had started by saying there was rustling sounds and then later it became that he heard strangling sounds and that it, and that he had said that he thought he was concerned that they were treating him like a suspect the way i took that to mean was that what he had originally said was that there was rustling sticks which is more more than likely true and then because he felt like he was being a suspect he said that it was strangling sounds kind of giving the police telling them what they wanted to hear because he was getting nervous. Janet was Janet was wondering if what you meant was that because he felt like he was a suspect, is that why 
he then told the full truth that it was a strangling sound. No, from he, I, I don't think he actually used strangling until he was on the stand. Okay. So his statements were rustling and then struggling, and it wasn't until he was on the stand that he used strangling, and that's why Donald Finley went, "Hang on, where's that come from?" My feeling was that he was being manipulated. He was afraid that a bit like a bit like Luke's brother, you tell us what we want to hear, or you're going down as well. Right, that type of thing. More than did to to Luke's brother. I think they may have been doing the same thing to this guy. In that, you know, are you sure it was just wrestling? Could it have been a struggle? And this guy's now panicking, going, "Oh God, they think I'm lying." You know, I better see. I better see if that's what it was, rather than telling the whole truth. I, I don't. I think the truth is, he heard a rustling sound. Right did, now, did he actually say that he felt like he was being becoming a suspect? Yes, said that on the stand. Okay, good. He was asked, he was asked why his statements had changed, and he said, "I was scared. I felt like you were treating me as a suspect." So he said that on the stand. Gotcha. Uh, people want to know the the guy that had the that was that went to the beer store, uh, who was seen at the entrance to the path. Did he ever acknowledge and and express to police that that was that he was in fact there getting beer at that time? By the time they found him, well, they always knew he was there. They just didn't go speak to him. So it was three years later before they actually spoke to him. By then, he had changed his story, and said he was on a different road at a different beer store that night. So so we only know from statements from his friends in 2003 that did give statements to the police that he was on that path and that he told them he was running on that path and that the police had spoken to him because he was running on that path, oh, sorry, on that road. Uh, by the time they come back to him in 2006 and do actually interview him, the story changes and he's in a different beer store at 10 o'clock at night. And the CCTV footage catches him in this different beer store on a different road. Mm-hmm. And that somehow clears him for the time of the murder. So it's all, it's all, you know, as time goes on, these stories change. And it's almost like they're trying to distance them from 2003 as time goes on. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, he, he, he himself according to his friends at the time and according to conversations that they had, said that he'd gone up that road to get beer at tea time that night. Okay. And then three years later, somehow that's in a different road in a different direction to a different beer store five hours later. And there was video surveillance footage of him at the other beer store? Yes. Okay. Or we're told there was. Nobody's ever seen it. We were told there was. So then something that came up when we, you know, when we started, we started publishing these and putting them out on social media and stuff. Of course, people who think that Luke is guilty come, come out and make their statements about it. One of them was somebody said that there was an incident where Luke had threatened another girlfriend at knife point prior to Jody's murder. What can you tell me about that? Uh, Yeah, that apparently was the case, according to a girl who went to the media after the trial, after the conviction, but who wasn't actually called as a witness. Okay, so she wasn't called as a witness, but after the trial, she went to the media and said this happened? 
is there any other detail about it? Or was there any investigation done to see if it was a true account? Or what does Luke say about it? Does Luke say that it happened? Luke said it never happened. She said uh, it happened when they were both in the Army Cadets. But according to the attendance records at the Army Cadets, they weren't at the Cadets at the same time when this was claimed to have happened. So I guess we just we just leave that out there that this girl did come forward and say this happened. Luke says it didn't happen. There's some conflicting evidence there, and that's all we know. Yeah, there's really not not much else I can say. That there's nothing to corroborate it. She wasn't called as a witness, so one would assume that would have been powerful evidence if they thought it was reliable. And if the Army Cadet attendance records are really to be believed, it didn't happen when she said it happened and where she said it happened because they weren't both in cadets at the same time. Right. People wanted to know, is anyone in Jody's family in law enforcement? I believe now her sister works for Police Scotland. We do have some information that potentially two male relatives back in 2003 worked for Lothian and Borders Police, which was a police force that, that covered this area mm-hmm. back then. Um, at least one of them appears in the defence papers in the police statements but we're still to confirm that they were direct relatives and not more distant relatives Okay. but from what we know her sister is she does work for Police Scotland uh, well that leads to the next question was people want to know did Stephen and Janine end up getting married they did. They are now divorced. I don't they weren't married for very long, um, but they did go ahead and get married. Yeah. So the people wanted to know, we, we talked about the, uh, the condom guy, but other than him, have any of the alternate suspects that we talked about in the last episode, have they committed any other crime since the murder? Not to my knowledge. Um, we know that one of the moped boys had an outstanding charge at the time of trial for disfigurement with an iron bar. Those charges disappeared when they gave evidence against Luke. And we later found out that that assault was actually against a female. Hmm. But that that charge disappeared. As far as um, crimes for any of the others, I don't know. Okay. The last question I have for you, and I know it's 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 late there, um, so we're going to wrap this thing up. What kind of prisoner has Luke been? Has he had any any problems as far as behavior or discipline or anything since he's been in prison? He has been described throughout until last year as a model prisoner. You know, all of his reports every single year, all of his reports, model prisoner, uh, well behaved, polite, well mannered compliant, all of that. When they moved him to lower security after the documentary to make it look like he was going to progress towards parole, he never intended to do that. I have to make that absolutely clear. It was to make it look like something was happening. Right. And they tortured him. They absolutely psychologically tortured him. They gaslit him. They, they dangled promises in front of him and then snatched them away 
they punished him for the Sound of Silence series. So we we put out these interviews talking about what they were doing to him, and they lost their minds and sent him back to those conditions because we put this stuff out on the internet. Now, actually, in Scotland, that's not an offence. He is entitled to speak to journalists, but they sent him back. The other thing was twice during that period where they where they were psychologically torturing him, he took a sleeping pill from another prisoner to allow him to sleep because they were just frying his mind. And the morning after, on both occasions, six months apart, he was drug tested. Following morning. And of course he failed. First time in 20 years. So he's now back in close conditions, top security conditions. So he spent 20 years in prison without any issues at all. And then any issues he had have all been in this last year. Yeah. Okay, and I think with that, I think we have we have hit on every everything that I've seen come up through our social media and through our questions and through our follow ups. Uh, and and I cannot tell you enough how much we appreciate your time and you and you giving us all this information because, as you heard, once I started this case, I got real quickly realized that I didn't have the resources to actually uh, do the case justice and really get the full truth out there. So uh, I want to thank you again for that. Uh, I want to recommend again, people, if you go check out. Dr. Lean's book, Innocence with a T, Innocence Betrayed, uh, and definitely go check out the YouTube channel, uh, Sound of Silence, or the YouTube series, Sound of Silence, if you want to hear Luke. Uh, and is that where, when you publish those other interviews, is that where you'll put them out? Yes. They'll be on my, just Dr. Sandra Lean uh, on YouTube. I'll put them on there with, with all the other. All right. Well, I appreciate that. So go check that out. And once again, thank you so much, Dr. Lean. Thank you so much for for taking such an interest in Luke's case. It's really, really encouraging that more people are getting to hear the story. Thank you. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production. All music for the show is created and composed by Shane Yoder at PutThemInASong.com. The font you see on all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com Design Created manages and maintains our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our volunteer transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Courtney Wimberly, Erica Cantor, Melissa Cardenas, Kay Widyomnik, and Danielle Rohr. And as always, thank you to all of you for your engagement and your support. If you like the show and you want to support us, you can do that in a number of ways. The number one way for you to support our work is to become a patron at patreon.com slash truthandjustice. If you join our Patreon, not only will you be financially supporting our work, but you'll also get something for your pledge. For just $5 per month, you'll get all episodes ad-free and also a video version of the Friday follow-ups that include an hour-long pre-show chat exclusive to our patrons. Other levels will get you a Truth and Justice Army t-shirt, Truth and Justice hats, and even the opportunity to co-host a Friday follow-up episode. Just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice to sign up. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review doesn't cost you a penny and it goes a long way towards making the show more visible 
you have a case that you'd like us to consider covering, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page, follow us on Instagram, or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters out there, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod, and I can be found on social media at BobRuffTruth. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you Lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Undaria Algae Body Oil and Undaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com, code GLOW. Get ahead of the postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM.